Easter Sunday. We had an awesome first service, excited about today, and we're starting a new series this whole month that is titled, I Want to Believe, But. I don't know about you, but I hear a lot of objections to the faith, to even belief in Christianity and in our world and the rhetoric, and, and some of it is valid in the sense that not a lot of people are living out what they should be living, and it's a stain to people that proclaim the name of Jesus. But a lot of it, I think, is pretty simply, uh, pretty simple to argue or to come against, to have some sort of evidence for why you believe what you believe. And so this, throughout this whole month, we're going to be talking about some of the objections of the faith, the real things. A lot of them are substantial. Some of them are have substance behind them, and some of them are just emotional and things that we've been through. And I want to talk about that today, starting with the concept of the resurrection, since it's Easter. It makes sense to do this. I, I grew up in a church, a Baptist church, and uh, I would, we would go to church every once in a while. We definitely weren't super committed or anything, um, going with my parents. But I remember, uh, maybe some of you remember this, we would have hymns in the seats, and hymns aren't all bad, but how many of you guys remember pulling out your hymn, standing up, turn to hymn number, da 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 anybody, anybody out here like that, yeah? And we would sing these hymns, and a lot of times it was the same hymns, in case you are of the, the, the type of person that's like, hey, we need hymns back in the church, which I, I agree, there are some great hymns, um, but don't get too religious on me, because those hymns were actually created from bar songs, that were secular, that then they turned into hymns for the church. So if you want to look at originally how they were created, um, that was actually how they came from secular world going into the church. And so uh, opening those hymns, though, growing up, I remember opening to, there was a hymn number 251, and it was a song called He Lives. Anybody know this song? He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives in me. He walks, with, okay, there's a couple of you. He walks with me, he talks, right? And, and, and we would sing this song, and the height of the song, it would, it would end, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And that's great. And I think that's a part of testimony of people that know God. But it's not really working. It doesn't fully work out in our world today. Just to say, I just know it within my heart. If someone challenges you about, for instance, the resurrection or about God in general, why do you love him? Why do you trust him? Well, he, he just lives in my heart. I just know in my knower. That's okay. That's very subjective. And in fact, Christianity, above really every other religion, if you could even call it a religion, has substantial evidence for why we believe what we believe based on history, based on evidence, not just blind faith walking on water or, or just in the dark trying to figure this thing out, but there's actually evidence behind it. And this is one of my favorite things about God and about the, about the scripture and about Jesus who says, don't turn your mind off, don't turn your intellect off. Even today as we celebrate the resurrection and the songs we're singing about the resurrection, there's evidence and there's proof and there's some substance to why we believe this and why it's so convincing. 
That it's not just based on someone who found something in a cave and an angel spoke to them and they went out and proclaimed it, but based on eyewitness accounts and manuscripts and people and changed lives. And I think it's important to intellectually know this because I think it builds our faith also then emotionally, spiritually, and subjectively to know it. Not discrediting the feeling that he lives within your heart, but let's add to that that there's such good news in what we believe and such substance in what we believe. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to the church in Corinth around anywhere from 52 to 57 AD, so a mere 25, 30 years after Jesus died and was resurrected. And he's writing to the church about the most important thing about what they need to believe. And I want to look at this scripture today as we go forward. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So go talk to them. Though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7. Then he appeared to James, which is the brother of Jesus. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely board, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your very faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul, speaking to this church, says, Listen, you're believing something, and don't forget the power of this. In fact, he says this is of most most utmost importance. All of Christianity hinges on the resurrection. If it didn't happen, you're still in your sins. We're to be pitied. 
above everybody else. And he can say that because he's in jail, in prison, writing and persecuted under this. And he's going, why would I go through all this if there's no resurrection? Otherwise, I should just eat, drink, and be married because tomorrow we'll die. There's no hope. There's going to be some, some great comet, meteor, or burning of the earth one day. So who, it doesn't matter how we live because there's no eternity. There's nothing on the other side. There's no accountability. There's no point to this life. life there's no purpose. He says, without the resurrection. And everything in Christianity hinges on that. Now, a lot of people can go, how can you believe in a God that would swallow a person? You could believe that, you know, a whale swallowed a person, spit him out. How do you believe in a God that all the animals fit into Noah's Ark? And there's no way. This is ridiculous. These are all fables. These are stories. And I think there's great arguments and understanding behind those things. But all of those things should lead you to this question ultimately is, do you or do you not believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And if you do, what does that mean? Why does it matter? And why is it the very linchpin or the very hinge of all Christian faith? Because that's the final question. That's the ultimate trump card is, do you believe in this? Now, there are several theories that have been postulated throughout the years about what happened to the body of Jesus. What happened to a, a, a man who was by evidence and by history, in all accounts, born, raised, crucified, buried, and then the body's gone. What is the actual evidence of any sort of resurrection and why should that be the conclusion of a body that went missing. Well, there are a lot of theories, and I'm going to go over five theories today to help substantiate the power of the resurrection and why it's something you can trust intellectually as well as emotionally and spiritually. Let's look at one of the first theories of what people would say happened at that time. The hallucination theory is a popular theory, and it says this, Jesus didn't rise the apostles were deceived by a hallucination. So all the apostles, you know, they're taking communion, maybe a little too much wine, maybe some shrooms fell in the Mount of Olives, and they were just all hallucinated. Paul would say of his account as one who is an eyewitness who was there, he would say, not only have I seen the Christ risen, but the apostles, he said, 500 people were witnesses. And he said, even James, the brother of Jesus, Jesus appeared to him. Now, if you need more proof than Jesus' own brother believing he's God, you don't have any siblings. <laughs> if your sibling today started preaching and proclaiming he's God and doing miracles and healing. And what, what you need to understand is James was never, he wasn't one of the apostles. He wasn't a follower of Christ. His other brothers weren't. In fact, there's, there's, a, there's a point in the gospel of Mark where they're calling out to Jesus, Mary and his brother saying, hey, bro, you crazy. You're, you're going to die. This is, this is crazy what you're doing. And Jesus rebukes them and doesn't go with them. 
Instead, continues on his way. They thought he was nuts at one point. But something happened to where James became, wrote the book of James, and became a disciple of Jesus and believed that his own brother was God. And Paul would say it's one of the reasons is Jesus appeared to him. It would take something that dramatic as a sibling probably. But Paul is saying, listen, the hallucination theory alone, they didn't necessarily have this theory then, but as we've tried to qualify what happened, those hallucination theory alone, medically, scientifically, people don't genuinely, especially generally, especially 500 people at the same time see the exact same vision, exact same uh, posture, words, everything that are accounted for. Usually it's random and it's crazy. It's not everybody at the same time. And so the hallucination theory kind of falls to its knees. Another theory would be the myth theory. This theory says this, Jesus didn't actually rise. The apostles created a myth. They weren't really meaning it literally. So the the apostles um, needed to come up with some kind of myth in order to control the masses, and just make people feel really good. Because I I don't know about you, but Christianity, it just feels really good. Thinking about the judgment of God, um, things like hell, that just feels really good. That sounds really man-made, doesn't it? Like things like uh, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've sinned in your heart. Man, that sounds like something a guy would make up. (laughs) So the myth theory is postulating that, that they just came up with this myth in order to fool the masses and make themselves look really good. One of the problems with this myth is a problem with some of the other myths is that what did it actually give the disciples to come up with this story? Persecution, beating, death. Every one of the disciples died in excruciating ways, minus John that we know of, but beheaded, crucified upside down, tortured, burned. Why in the world would you die for a myth? Another idea of the myth is that Jesus himself was a myth. There's a movement nowadays, but most scholars, even like Bart Ehrman, some agnostic, atheistic scholars themselves will say there's absolute enough, plenty of evidence that Jesus was real and in history. And in fact, the Bible that you have, the scripture that you have, is more substantiated than any other literature in antiquity, by far. The way scholars and historians consider something as factual or truth is by two E's, either how early we have of manuscripts of that event or eyewitness accounts. And that's how we can substantiate things like Alexander the Great, which you've learned in history and in class. I'm sure you've learned all about his exploits. You've seen the horrible movies and you know about Alexander the Great. And there's not much discussion. And yet the closest manuscript we have of Alexander the Great is somewhere around 350 years after he was dead. Whereas the Gospels, we have it as close as within 40 to 60 years And if you even look at this book that we're talking about, this scripture we just looked at, you've got Paul saying, I was an eyewitness. And he says this, the thing that I got, I'm giving to you. I received, I'm giving to you. Well, where did he receive that? From the apostles, more than likely, when he went to Jerusalem and talked to them. 
So we're talking within the first few years eyewitness accounts talking directly to people going forward. The myth theory falls on its knees. The next one, the conspiracy theory. This one says this, Jesus didn't actually rise. The apostles were deceivers who conspired to foist on the world the most famous and successful lie in history. They were trying to deceive everybody. Let me give you a quote from historian Eusebius in AD 314. He says this, if this is true and they were just conspiring with a lie, the disciples were sitting around saying this, let us band together to invent all the miracles and resurrection appearances which we never saw and let us carry the sham even to death. Why not die for nothing? Why dislike torture and whipping, inflicting for no good reason? Let us go out to all the nations and overthrow their institutions and denounce their gods. And even if we don't convince anybody, at least we'll have the satisfaction of drawing down on ourselves the punishment for our own deceit. This was written in 314 AD as an argument against some kind of deception that the disciples would have. Chuck Colson says this, I know how impossible it is for a group of people, even some of the most powerful in the world, to maintain a lie. The Watergate cover-up lasted only two weeks before the first conspirator broke and turned state's evidence. Not 2,000 years. Paul E. Little, he wrote of author of uh, Know What You Believe, would say this, men will die for what they believe to be true, even if or though it may actually be false. So people will die as long as they believe it's true, even if it's false. He says, they do not, however, die for what they know is a lie. It's convincing that the conspiracy theory also falls on its knees. What about the swoon theory? If you don't know what the swoon theory is, it's a theory that Jesus didn't actually die. Jesus only swooned and was resuscitated, not really resurrected. So he was beaten, flogged, crown of thorns, carrying a cross, hung on a cross with a group of people that were professional executors and knew what it meant for someone to be dead, jabbed through the side with a spear with water and blood coming out, according to the descriptors was buried and embalmed in a tomb, and yet three days later, just woke up. He just resuscitated. And then he crawled his way to the disciples and said, ta-da. <laughs> and they said, you are king. You are Lord. You have risen from the dead. Now, hey, doctor, medic, medic. This is how absurd this is. Uh, Josh McDowell, great apologist in our day today, would say this. Can you actually believe that the cool, damp air of the tomb, instead of killing Christ, healed him? He split out of his garments, pushed the stone away, fought off the guards, and shortly thereafter appeared to the disciples as the Lord of life. It takes a lot of faith. The swoon theory crumbles as well on its knees, just in the midst of reason, of thinking, of critical investigation and evaluation of what could actually 
take place. There's many other theories. There's theories of the stolen body that Mark actually refers to that it was proclaimed that the disciples came and stole the body while the guards were asleep. Well, the problem is if the guards were asleep, how would they know it was the disciples that stole the body? And why would the disciples who are scared to death of the Romans and of what's going on steal the body and then ultimately die again for a sham? All the evidence starts to point to a miraculous event in which a man was raised from the dead. And not just any man, but a man amongst men who proclaimed audacious things about himself, but also performed miracles to bring substance to himself. And you notice in the miracles that Jesus performed, people didn't actually ever deny the miracles. Even the religious people who hated him and ultimately crucified him didn't say, ha, you didn't really heal that dude. They would say things like, oh, yeah, yeah, what what happened was you healed him, but it was the Sabbath, so it don't count. Or that dude's got a demon, so that's how he did it, through the power of the Satan. They didn't deny the actual miracles they performed. This was not just your average man, but the son of man, the king of kings, the lord of lords. And I think the greatest theory, I would be convinced enough, is factual with evidence is the theory of Christianity and the argument for Christianity, which I'm going to give you. There's many, but I'm going to give you a few here. Number one, why is Christianity the theory of the resurrected body of Christ that he died, was buried, and rose again, as Paul proclaimed and many others? Number one, the emergence of the church. And I would say not just today, okay, because a lot of people believe in a lot of things, but the emergence of the church at that time. Think about this. If you wanted to start a myth or some kind of religion or something, you would not start it at the city that you're proclaiming it happened in. Are you with me? So Jesus was crucified, died. They know about Jesus. He's in Jerusalem. And that's where the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2, when they get up and they stand and they talk about Jesus being resurrected. 3,000 people, and they say things like, you crucified him, and the people are cut to the heart because they were there and they saw, but they also know there wasn't a body and they've been hearing rumors, and God moved in their life. Listen, you wouldn't start a church there. You would go to Rome or another part of the world to fashion this thing, it would absolutely break at the very beginning if this happened in Houston and we started talking about the resurrection because somebody would say, no, the body's right here. You're crazy. You are drunk. So the very emergence of the church happening at the very place that he was crucified, where they knew where the tomb was, is where the church grew and came alive. The changed lives of early skeptics, skeptics like Saul, who then he changed his name to Paul. God didn't change his name to Paul, okay? He changed his name to Paul to reach the Greeks, okay? So, but Saul was persecuting the church, passionate about the Hebrew God, the God of the Tanakh, the God of the Old Testament. He was passionate about that God, persecuting the church. There when the first martyr, Stephen, was there, he was there. He was out persecuting. He is the very one that then 
turned around and came to Christ, and not for glory and for fame like some gospel uh, pr- prosperity preacher telling you to touch the screen and he's living in this mansion. This man died for his faith and was in prison and was beaten for his faith. This guy, who was considered an incredible intellectual and a scholar of his time, turned because he saw the risen Christ as well. From one of the greatest advocates to a different religion, to an advocate, an apologist to Christianity. So the changed life of early skeptics. Number three, willingness for the disciples to die for what they claimed about Jesus and his resurrection. As we've talked about, this very willingness to go all the way shows they had to not only believe, but believe it to be true and then be eyewitnesses that we can trust. Verse, or number four, the changed minds of modern skeptics provide further support. So not only skeptics then, but modern skeptics today like C.S. Lewis, Joshua McDowell, William Lane Craig, some of these that were avid atheists that turned, that changed their life. A lot of them that would study evidence for Christianity or study evidence for God and come to the conclusion as they're being objective, this makes sense. This is intellectually valid. This is reasonable. And this is amazing. There was a, a famous uh, legal scholar who was a Jewish man, Dr. Simon Greenleaf, and he was challenged by one of his students. He was uh, a professor at Harvard, and he created really, in essence, the map of the Harvard Law of School for laws of evidence in order to convict a criminal. In uh, 1783 to 1853, he died. But he was challenged by one of his students, hey, these same laws for evidence that you're using in the court system that they still use today, and he's held as one of the greatest professors of this school, One of the students said, hey, I challenge you to use that same idea and evidence about the crucifixion and apply it there. He did it. And he says this, after evaluating all the evidence, Greenleaf accepted Jesus' resurrection as the best explanation for the events that took place immediately after his crucifixion. To this brilliant legal scholar, it would have been impossible for the disciples to persist with their conviction that Jesus had risen if, he, if they hadn't actually seen the risen Christ. To this legal expert, the case for Jesus' resurrection was so compelling that he had no doubt it would hold up in a court of law, evidence, substance. In his book, The Testimony of the Evangelists, Greenleaf documents the evidence supporting his conclusion. He challenges those who seek the truth about the resurrection to fairly examine the evidence. Greenleaf believed that any unbiased person who honestly examines the evidence as in a court of law will conclude what he did, that Jesus Christ has truly risen. He became a Messianic Jew. He believed in Christ using his own work to substantiate the evidence. You have reason to believe. Number five, testimonies of countless believers today and throughout history attest to the truth of Christianity. If we just went around this room and stopped, and we just said, hey, tell me about your life and what God has done in you. I mean, we could be here all day and all night talking about what God has done in each of our lives. Just a personal testimony that is absolutely valid. And then finally, and this is one of my favorites, 
although it's pretty obvious, Jesus said so, and he has the credentials to know this. Now, most people respect Jesus as a good teacher, maybe even a prophet, and they'll say and they'll use a lot of his words. They'll say a lot of the things, do unto others as you should do, don't, don't judge. They'll use a lot of his words, and they'll say he's a really good guy, but the crazy part is this. It's easy to pick and choose what you want because ultimately he says about himself, before Abraham was, I am. He calls himself God. When people are worshiping him, he doesn't stop them. They continue. He proclaims, he proclaimed himself that he would die and on the third day raise from the dead. The man that we say, yeah, he's a good guy. Listen to the words that are coming out of his mouth. Trust him. The miracles alone that he did substantiate that this is someone worth listening to. And of course, as believers and as a believer myself, because of the evidence, because of the history, now I want to give myself to everything he says because I might not trust you and believe your words, but if you raise from the dead, that puts you up a notch or two where I think I'm going to listen a little more intently. I think we should listen to a man who did the things that he did and ultimately that we could trust the resurrection. Now, as we kind of close and wrap up, those are some just basic intellectual arguments slash objections, understanding of the resurrection. And I think a lot of us can maybe, maybe come to the conclusion like some many, many and hundreds of thousands, millions of people have come to the conclusion, okay, Jesus did in fact raise from the dead. He was resurrected. And I think though in our culture, especially because we're so inoculated in America with Christianity and Jesus, God and church, that we could just, we don't really feel the full impact of that. We could even maybe say, okay, you convinced me Jesus raised from the dead, so what? What does that have to do with my life today because my family's falling apart or my job's falling apart or things are happening? Who cares? What does that have to do with anything what that guy did 2,000 years ago? And I would say there is an emotional, there's a spiritual impact and understanding. We have to embrace this day to bring both celebration and conviction, I think, in our life. One of the number one Understanding is the need for forgiveness in life. We all know, we'll say it, I'm just only human, I'm just a man, I'm just a dude, I'm just a woman, I'm just, I'm just a, we all understand that and yet we still carry the conviction and the shame of the things that we know we ought to do and yet we do not do them. And we do have a God that expects and wants us to experience his life and ultimate perfection. And we need a savior. We cannot save ourselves. So someone had to come. And someone had to die for our sin, for our place. Now, many of us might say, what kind of cruel, bloodthirsty God requires blood and death in order just to have a relationship. Why can't he just forgive and forget? That's what I would do. That would come from someone who's probably never experienced any type of victimization. There's a story a few years ago of a student at Stanford who 
got caught and was in court for raping a girl and leaving her. They found her by the trash can unconscious and he raped her. And he's in trial and at court and his dad writes to the judge and says to the judge, this was just a stupid act from a kid. And he says this, his dad quoted, it's a steep price to pay for 20 minutes of action. Can't we just forgive and forget? He's got a long life. Let's not send him to jail. And that's easy to say on this side, but imagine what the girl was feeling and her family was feeling. That there was a sense of justification and and indignation. Something needed to happen in response to this horrible thing that happened to her. There needs to be some kind of justice. You don't just, we don't just live in a world where everything's fine and just forgive and forget because there's got to be a sense of justice or at the end of the day, what's the point of morality? She wrote in and wrote saying this, the girl who was victimized said to her assailant, you should have never done this to me, but here we are. The damage is done. No one can undo it. And now we both have a choice. We can let this destroy us. I can remain angry and hurt. And you can be in denial or we can face it head on. I accept the pain. You accept the punishment. And we move on. Justice has to be served at some point. It has to be. For God at all to be good. And yet... And yet, all of us, no one can throw a stone at someone else because we've all sinned and we've all fallen short. And you might not have done to that extreme, but you've done your fair share where you cannot stand before a holy God in a courtroom and say, justified, I'm good. All of us will stand trial at one point because God is good and he is just. And so God became a man. And he said this in the same words she used, just to borrow. From the cross, Jesus makes his appeal to each one of us. You should have never done this to me. Crucified me, beaten me as a sinless, holy man. But here we are, the damage is done, and only I can undo it. And now you have a choice. You can be in denial or we can face it head on. I accept the pain, I accept the punishment, and we move on. This is what it means to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that, listen, at the cross, truth and justice came on a man, but also grace and mercy kissed at the same time. And as we say it all the time, you are more, I am more evil than I can even imagine. The depths of my sin, it's worse than I can even think. And if I think God can just wave it off, I don't understand how bad and evil it truly is. And yet, at the same time, I am more loved than I can even imagine or hope. Because God would take it for me. All I have to do is say, I receive that. And when I reject that, I reject him. I spit in his face and say, no, I got this, or I don't need that. 
And one day, justice will be served. Is it going to be served to you? Or are you allowing it to be served to the one who came to serve? This is the power of the resurrection that changes everything about your life. In fact, Paul would say it this way. If there's no resurrection, you're still in your sin. There's, the payment has not been cleared. You're through. You cannot get over it. You will be a slave forever. And there is no purpose ultimately in your life. But that resurrection, not only for the next life, but for today, gives me power to overcome sin so I don't have to manage it. But I can defeat it. I can kill it. For a desire and a passion for a God who came in passion for me. I want to end with a video. We're going to worship and pray together. Check this video out. If we preach that Christ has been raised from the dead and preach hope that the same resurrection will be given to us, how can some of us say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is our faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have died before us are, are all lost and remain hidden in the ground like this body. And if we have lived and bled and hoped and died in Christ for the same resurrection, then we are of almost to be pitied. But Christ has been raised from the dead. <sighs> Christ has been raised from the dead. We are not to be pitied. We are to be proud of a Savior and a God who would love us. I want to ask you to stand to your feet as we close in worship today. We're going to have our one-to-one -one team come to the front. We have communion here, communion back there. If you want to personally today take communion in response to God's love and His Son. Also, if you're here today and you want to connect with us we want you to connect with people we have ways to do that but most importantly we want you to connect with God and you can come to the front get prayer also we have these prayer request cards and you can fill out here I want to know more about a relationship with Jesus or I'm, I'm a new believer I'm beginning a relationship and give us some of your information we love to connect with you even this week and talk to you more about what a relationship with God looks like and how that changes everything about us today let's pray together Father we worship you we thank you for Resurrection Sunday God that we do have a hope 
God, that we do have a future. God, that we do have a purpose. God, that wrongs will be righted. Lord, and that grace will triumph. God, and that you can change our lives from the inside out. Because the resurrection mocked death and said, where is your sting? Sin, where is your control and your chains? Thank you, Jesus, for the power of your blood and the resurrection power you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to worship. If you need prayer for anything, we're here.